anyone can begin a conversation with us, it begins with, don't take this personal. But I don't know if you've ever had that beginner of a conversation. Um, my natural knee-jerk reaction to, hey, David, don't take this personal. You, you kind of like are like ducking for cover. Like, oh, here it comes. Try not to be defensive. And right or wrong, credible or not, there is a judgment that's about to be made about you. Don't take it personal, but your mother dresses you funny. You know, don't take this personal, Dad, but your breath stinks. Dad, don't take this personal, but you're not that cool. Uh, don't take this personal, and all of a sudden you have this sense like, can I even respond to this? Because I'm not supposed to take it personal, but I do. I can't not take it personal. Uh, we always brace ourselves for things like that. The question is, when we hear a statement that's going to be made about us, um, we have to kind of wrestle with the idea of, can I separate my attitude from my character? Can I separate what is my effort from who I am? Can I separate the things that I do, just in daily life, good or bad, better or worse, from my identity? I think this is a really important thing to be able to measure because we live our lives with incredible vulnerability that is terribly exhausting. Because someone's always judging our artwork, whatever your canvas may be, everyone wants to give a commentary on it, whether it be the way you cut your hair or the way you dress, whether how you perform at work, or whether it be how you raise your children, whatever the case might be, there is this canvas that is our lives, and we have to have a way that is beyond ourselves to define ourselves so that we're not crushed by the weight of the world in daily and ordinary life. Amen? This is, this is, this is a huge conundrum. So here's the thing. We wanted to launch into a new series and the new series we're simply calling Yearning to Believe. And today, what we want to talk about is the life that God intended, or a theological approach that says life with God. Um, but over the next few weeks, we want to talk about what does it mean to yearn to believe in this better reality. And so we talk about, from a sociological standpoint, a yearning for justice, or an ecological standpoint, a yearning for beauty. And these are all things that I think are inherent in each of us. There's a, a psychological yearning for wholeness, or even a, what would be called an eschatological, that's a future yearning uh, for purpose, or simply a living hope, the way, or the shaping of things to come, and the way God intended. And so I'm excited about this series, particularly because of the implications of what it means to live in light of the resurrection, which I think is one of the most defining things about us. So there's an outline. I hope you picked one up. There's some on the table. Uh, because at the end, I want to go through a list of things because we're always having this commentary about our life. And then here's the other thing. We have this internal commentary going on about what we believe. And that's not always the right source. So we have to talk about the source. Who for you is a credible source? Who do you trust in general in life? Nobody. Nobody. <laughs> do we trust the government? No. Do we trust the church? No. 
Do we trust the White House and Jen Psaki? Or are you more like, I trust Joe Rogan? Uh, who do you trust? Who are your sources? Do you trust the World Health Organization? Do you trust the CDC? Do you trust your primary care physician? Who are the sources that we trust? Do you trust God's word? Do you trust yourself? In your worst moments, after a long and a bad day, do you trust what you believe is true about yourself in that emotional moment? Do you trust what God believes about you? These are really important questions for us to mine and consider the source. So as we begin today, a theological look, we have to start with our identity. That is, who we are in light of who God is. And if we want to start there about a life in God, because I think this is something that we all yearn for, and a yearning is a longing. A longing for maybe something that's been removed or we've lost. A yearning for something that I think is the truest version of ourselves. So let's go to the original creation story in Genesis 1, 27, where it says, God created man, uh, mankind, in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, God created them. So in the sixth day of creation, we have this beautiful picture for how God wanted to shape us in the image of God himself. So imagine our lives that are being formed out of the dust, and there is this handprint, this indelible mark that is our life in who God is. And that mark, that handle, that handprint, can only be filled with the, with the presence and the design of how God has oriented our lives. And so God creates this indentation and wants us to fill it with him, but we spend a lot of time filling it with achievement, with net worth, with a sense of beauty or, or, or self-beauty. We, 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 we want to give ourselves to the applause of, of, of others. And this leaves us in this terribly vulnerable precarious place. And what's interesting about the Genesis account pre-sin, Genesis 3 is when sin enters the human condition and, and the world that we know, but in the early part, in this creation story, it said that God walked in the cool of the garden. Somehow, we as humankind could experience the unfiltered, unmitigated presence of God. And what God did from the earliest account was he wanted to establish his presence to fill our lives, to flood our lives with the reality that we are created by him and for him and nothing else can satisfy or give us more, more purpose or meaning. Amen. This is the reality of who we are. But we are chasing so many lesser loves to fill that void. So we have to be mindful as we carry our lives in this broken world, in a broken condition, that there is this indentation that God wanted us to experience. And so when God walks through the cool of the garden for us to experience him, it's almost a reminder to say, this is the life that you were intended for, and it's life 
in God. So this is what breaks the heart of God, what breaks my heart when people are trying to get by without an acknowledgement of God, whether it be in their prosperity or in their profound need, whether it be in their trauma and their scars or whether it be in their competence and their talent. Either place leaves us really in a vulnerable place and, and, and it actually keeps us separated from God. So we need to talk about identity and I was listening to a podcast by Tim Keller. I don't know how many of you are familiar with Tim Keller. He is a fantastic thinker. He pastored in, in New York City for, uh, I don't know, 25 years or so, and now he's, he's recovering from pancreatic cancer, but he still does a lot of interviews and it does a really wonderful writing. But he started giving this commentary on our identity. And let me just say up front, he is an equal opportunity offender. So um, he had the courage to say it. I just happened to totally agree with it, but I'm going to blame him if you don't like it, okay? So let me just outline what Tim Keller was saying about these identity heresies of which our culture is defining. And so again, what are your sources? How are you allowing you to be defined? Where are you drawing your sort of fulfillment, confidence, meaning, and purpose? Because the world has got some messaging that are heretical. And here's what he said. He gave three examples of three identity heresies that our world, and see if these sound familiar, see if these might even touch close to home. The first identity heresy that he would outline would be what he called a therapeutic or an individualistic model. And in this model, your identity or someone self-identifies by their deepest longing and desire. It's someone self-referencing based on a feeling that might or might not be right, that might or might not be true and constant. But in this moment, I am my deepest feeling. That leaves us in a really precarious place. Because I don't know about you, but I don't always trust my emotions. I have this idea about who God is, but in the moment, I often feel like God is distant, even though I believe fundamentally that God is present. Does it sound true? So when we leave ourselves to self-define based on how I might feel in a given day, as a male, as a female, or, or wherever we find ourselves on the gender fluidity spectrum, which is the debate today. And so people are self-referencing about who they are and, and, and it's just, uh, it leaves them in a very difficult place based on emotions. The second one he begins to identify is what he called a progressive victim model or a minority approach to self-definition. And what he says is, if a person says, oh, I'm not white, I'm not male, and I'm not straight, so therefore, I find virtue in that. And so the, 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 the self-definition, the identity, is being found as a minority and particularly as a victim. Does this sound sort of like the commentary and what we're struggling with today? And the problem is, is that you look at the life of Christ alone and you go, if anyone could play the victim card, it's Christ. And no amount of reparations is going to add enough value and worth to anyone's life to make the, the, the scales even. It's vindictive. It's, it, it's just wrong. And what we're trying to do is operate outside of God's economy. 
Okay. Let me go a little bit further because I don't think I've effectively um, maybe um, stepped on everyone's toes yet. He also goes on to say a third approach, which is a Christian nationalism approach or a right-wing approach, of which he says is this fusion of white American Protestantism that is not necessarily gracious or hospitable to Muslims and particularly immigrants. And says, again, all three of these things are identity heresies. And our world is being divided left and right. And you're not tolerant enough, or you're not accepting enough, and you're not gracious enough. And so we find ourselves in this really difficult place. So then the question is, is how do we define ourselves then? Now, here's what I would say. When we open up the Psalms, and if you read about lots of Psalms, um, David and others, there's often this picture that gets painted in the Psalms of waking up at the dawn, of calling out to God in this creation setting. The earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof, and, and so on and so forth. But then we have this reference again and again in the gospel accounts of how Jesus kept withdrawing to a solitary place or a secluded place. That even though Jesus was in demand, he was not going to be driven by the popularity or even the messiahness, the, the oh my gosh, I need to be needed. He was going to keep withdrawing to commune with his heavenly father. What's interesting is the word secluded is the same Greek root word that is the word wilderness where Jesus was in for 40 days to be tempted. Now we think of those 40 days as going face to face with Satan. Really what it was, was 40 days to inaugurate the earthly ministry of Jesus to be alone with his heavenly father. But by the way, that doesn't preclude Satan from tempting us with this lies and deceit. We think if I'm going all after God, we're not going to be threatened. Jesus goes all after his heavenly father, setting out with his life on mission, and Satan enters the equation because that is always going to be a threat to the kingdom of darkness. And those were identity challenges in the desert or in this wilderness secluded spot. So really what we have is this picture, almost like a wrestling match, that each day we need to seclude ourselves, go to this solitary place, whether it be physically, whether it be emotionally, that we need to be reminded of not just who we are, but whose we are. We need to be reminded that, that I am created for and by God. And every time we're, we walk out to this secluded wilderness experience, there is an open invitation for our character to be refined by a God who's already in love with us because we're created in his image as a child of God. You're God's own because you are. It's not like, okay, if I can get my act together, if I could be a little more godly this week than I was last week, then somehow... I can make myself more presentable to my parent. Think about your kids. Like, they're just born into this reality that you're my mom. I don't have to really earn this. In fact, I don't even treat you nice because I know you won't stop loving me. <laughs> There's all this looking around in the room. <laughs> well, I think we have this conundrum, this problem, because we keep trying to fix ourselves. 
We have to go back to the Genesis story where there's this indentation of the handprint of God, and we have to ask ourselves, what are we filling it with? The pat on the back from our friends and neighbors? The pat on the back that says, um, well, at least I'm not as bad as that person? The pat on the back that says, oh, or filling this indentation with some kind of, of worldly acclaim. And God's going, I created you in my image. That's enough. It's enough. So there is an invitation in Scripture to retreat to these solitary places where we are invited to wrestle with God. And I wonder, how often are you wrestling with God? How often do you wrestle with his word about what's true about what God says about you? And you're reshaping the narrative that the world, that the media, that Hollywood would say about you. Or that your shortcomings and inadequacies would say about you. I've got to be honest with you. Don't take this personal, but you're inadequate. <laughs> that was kind of a joke to my first joke. I was like, like, I wasn't trying to be a jerk about that. I'm just thinking about myself. Well, there is a, a passage of scripture that deals with this exactly about wrestling with God. It's the story of Jacob. Do you know Jacob's story where he wrestled with God? Well, there was this angelic figure that appears. And Jacob has had this long resume of deceit. In fact, his name means deceiver. And his brother is hot after his trail for stealing his birthright, among other things. And Jacob has self-identified as a deceiver, and he's like, oh, great, karma's going to come kick my butt now, because I'm going to get what seeds I've sown. And, and so he's really worried. And so, like a lot of us, when we get really anxious, when we get really depressed, when we get really afraid, when we go into crisis mode, it's then that we start calling on the name of the Lord and trying to get right with Jesus because somehow I screwed up and this is over my head and I need God to like bail me out. This is what Jacob's doing. But that doesn't disqualify him from his acceptance and love before his heavenly father. So he today is still known as one of the patriarchs of the Hebrew and Christian faith. I hope that that, that checkered resume gives you some amount of encouragement. Oh my gosh. Jacob's a deceiver, but his story is my story. And I don't let that, the, the narrative of my shortcomings define my life. But he goes into this wrestling match, which most of us are probably familiar with. I just want to make three simple points out of this passage that we see. Um, because when, when we choose to walk into the wilderness, into these secluded places, what we're allowed to do is understand that this is the place where only God sees us. Um, and it's where our Father reminds us of that we're dearly loved children and that nothing can change that. I don't know about you, but <laughs> that will change the way I tend to walk through my day. These secluded, these retreating moments to make sure I understand who I am uh, in light of who God is in my life. Here's what it says, Genesis 32, verses 24. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. And when the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go, for it is daybreak. Apparently the man was part vampire and couldn't see the light of day and had to take dark shelter. But Jacob replied, that was my own commentary. That is not of the Lord. 
I will not let you go unless you bless me. Which, I mean, come on now, have you had those moments? God, I need a sign. I need to know that you're with me. I need your blessing. I mean, this is our story. And Jacob's having this wrestling match as a, after a long road of running and deceitfulness and trying to prop himself up by his own cunning. Your name will no longer be Jacob, but it will be Israel, which literally means struggled with God. And he says, because you have struggled with God, with human, and have overcome. And Jacob says, please, Tell me your name. The guy's like, oh my gosh, you're totally missing the point. She's like, why do you ask my name? And then he blessed him there. And so Jacob called the place Peniel. It is because I saw God face to face, which is what Peniel means. And yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him and then he passed Peniel and he was limping because of his hip. So three quick observations. And if you have some kind of concern about not getting the fill in the blanks, let me make sure. Damaris told me that he gets a little anxious about filling in the blanks because he tends to miss out on one of them and it just can't complete the outline. I say, okay, overachiever of Harvard, that's a little too much. But if you have an outline, you want to take notes, here's the, here's the blanks. And I don't typically do this, but I wanted to have a list on the back side. A new name means a new identity. Think about this. You were born into this world and you weren't really known until you got a name. And what happens is, is that you start out as being Dave's son and then you go on to go, oh, you're Dave's dad. Uh, and then I lose my identity because everyone knows my kids. Just kidding, another bad joke. But the point is, a new name means a new identity. So if you walk into marriage, there's an identity shift, and I can no longer think about my life, but our life. When you walk into relationship with Christ, it's not about my will be done, it's your will be done. When I say yes to Jesus, it's, it's, it's understanding that my life is no longer the center of my world. I'm in him. Creates a new identity. It's a new way of being known. It's a new way of being human. The second thing we see is that part of Christian identity means that we need to wrestle with God. So if you are satisfied with a Christianity of, of pat answers uh, and tying ribbons on them, like, well, God will, won't give me anything handle, or God's supposed to give me the desires of my heart, I'm like, keep wrestling. <laughs> Go to the deep end and do some work. Get on the mat and have, you know, take God's course. I mean, there is something in the Christian experience that we absolutely need to wrestle and not get stuck in doubt. Amen. But too many Christians are, Christians are not wrestling with God. And this is, again, that invitation to that secluded, solitary, wilderness experience where it's you and God going face to face. And this is what Jacob does. And here's where it gets really interesting in the third part, is that in this moment, it says that like Jacob, we're all blessed with a limp. You can't say amen to that. You can only say ouch. Because every one of us has this moment where... You're like, 
Lord, if I can rewrite that chapter of my life, hell yeah. Because it was hell on earth. I don't want to go through that again. And yet God is such a redemptive God, he starts to bear beauty out of it. He starts to restore beauty from ashes. He gives us things of redemptive God that can give us wisdom from it. And so we can take the scars, we can take the inadequacies, we can take all the places that maybe hinder our confidence today and know that God wants to do a new work. This is what it means to live in the power of the resurrection. And God is wanting to do a new work. But we want to curse the inadequacies of our life, the areas of our life that we feel so fearful about. And, and what God is saying is, I have blessed you with a lift, Jacob, so that you won't be and continue to be so dece deceiving. And that limp, whatever your limp is, and we all have one, that limp is going to keep you reminded of your total and utter dependency on God to walk with you. If you don't think you have a limp, we should talk about it. Don't take it personal, but you do. And this is your greatest blessing because it's the thing that keeps you walking in sync and dependent on God. Isn't it interesting that when Jesus said he came for the poor, is that a judgment call for he didn't like wealthy? No. But guess what? Poor people, sick people, know that they need to receive what God has. The most self-sufficient self people are the ones who can provide a roof over their head and a full pantry. But if you're food insecure, guess what? You're looking to receive. God's like, oh, I can work with that. So when you take inventory and you wrestle with God, I want you to reframe what it is, is your spiritual limp. Maybe some part of your story. Maybe some disappointment in your family. Maybe there's some trauma that you had to endure and say, thank you, Lord, that, that you are doing a new work. Thank you, Lord, that you're drawing me to yourself. Thank you, Lord. Will you heal the memories of the pain of that? Will you heal the memories of the lost love? Will you heal those memories? Well, I have to live with a monster every day. Well, that might be the thing that keeps you dependent on God, saying, I don't know what this person thinks of me, or this person that I have to work with that makes me feel so inadequate, or this demanding client or patient that makes me feel like I'm never doing a good enough job. Let me tell you, you need to take time to be in solitude with the heart of the Father to reestablish a new narrative about who God says you are, who you are in light of who God is. One of the things I wanted to do was to challenge you to maybe reframe your own self-referential narrative. I think if we joked long enough, I would hear enough um, self-deprecating humor. If we joked long enough, there would be things that maybe there would be enough truth in jest that you would reveal something about yourself because you're terrible at taking a compliment. Well, let me just speak some of the most complimentary, life-giving words over you based on what God says about you. And that if you have chosen to walk in relationship with Christ, and you have now chosen to bear the name of Christ, that I am a Christian, a Christ follower, there is this whole new identity that comes with that name. Amen. And we need that. 
So Betsy, if you want to come and join us, I'm going to share with you some of these things, and I'm going to encourage you to make sure you get this list. And when you retreat this week to a solitary place, and you have young children, maybe it's in your bathroom, because that's the only time you can be left alone. Um, maybe it's in your car before you walk into work in the office. Maybe it's on your bedstand, and before you're turning out the light, you want to be able to um, marinate in your subconscious and dream state with the truth of who God has made you to be. I am God's child. These are just identity statements. Then I want to interrupt your narrative and give you what God says about you. For those of you who are in Christ, that's an identity statement. I'm a member of Christ's body. Which isn't to say I'm a conditional member. No, you're a full-fledged member. I've been established, anointed, and I am a citizen of heaven. I have not been given a spirit of fear, but of self-discipline. I am forgiven. Can you forgive yourself? I am a saint. Can we stop calling ourselves sinners saved by grace? That is not a biblical description of who we are. You're a saint. In fact, when Paul writes, he never calls them sinners. He says he talks to the saints. Doesn't mean they're perfect, but it's a new identity. I am the salt and the light of the earth. I am a personal witness of Jesus Christ. I am God's co-worker. Uh, we are called to live on mission. I am a minister of reconciliation. I am raised up with Christ. We just celebrated the resurrection. I am God's workmanship. I'm a member of God's household. I am the dwelling of the Holy Spirit. I can approach God with freedom and confidence. I am completed by God. I am called. Do you feel called? Do you feel like your work is more than your day job? Do you feel like you're called beyond the hours of work? I am his disciple. I possess the mind of Christ. I am chosen and dearly loved. I am the light of the world. Hold on now. I am the righteousness of God. I am no longer condemned. I am not helpless. I am overcoming. I am protected. I am born again. I am a new creation. I am delivered. ourselves together. 